Welcome to the Self Starter Show. I'm your host, Steve Clare, and on this show, you're gonna be hearing from entrepreneurs. You're gonna hear about their wins that got them where they are, their losses, and everything in between, as well as the advice that they have that helped them along the way. Along with bonus solo episodes of my personal secrets of life, success, and empathy sprinkled in for you, the listener, like chapters of a great book, each episode will provide you with a bit of a cheat code to success and happiness. This week, we are here with Max Ouchler. Max is the founder and general partner at GTM Fund. GTM stands for? Go to Market. Go to Market. He's a general partner at Go to Market Fund, where they are investing in early stage business to business software companies and supporting them with sales and marketing resources. Their investor network is comprised of over 300 go to market leaders from the world's leading software companies, which you may have heard of Salesforce, Microsoft, Snowflake, Datadog, Zoom, and many more. They started in early 2021, so it's relatively young, and they have seven, 75 million AUM. What's AUM stand for? Assets under management. Assets, we'll get into that. Uh, prior to the GTM fund, Max was the founder of Sales Hacker, which was acquired by Outreach in 2018 and served as the VP of Marketing at Outreach from 2018 to 2022, seeing the business go from roughly 25 million to over 250 million during that period. That's a 10x under Max's eye. He's an angel investor, advisor, and author of two books, uh, both of which I've read, one of which I read in uh, about a day and a half, couldn't put it down. And when he's not working, he is living a purposely slow life with his wife, two kids, and two King Charles Cavalier dogs. Without further ado, Max Auschler. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in, man. Yeah. So Max is in New York for the summer or for? For the summer, yeah. Scottsdale, Scottsdale based. So, so what's going on with the yeah. house while you're, while you're here? Which house? Uh, so, Scott, how many houses do you own? Oh man, three at this point. What's your home? What's your, what's your main residence? Scottsdale. Scottsdale, yes. And uh, we are rebuilding uh, kind of my dream backyard right now. So that's the big project. Should be done probably December. Adding uh, a pool house, the guest house, pool, chip and putting area, sport court, basketball court, playground. I was court, waiting for the chip and putting area. Got some citrus trees, garden boxes, you know, the whole thing, and like big open field for the kids to play in. Got and it. One of those trampolines, yeah. So the fact that you're putting in this much work, are you gonna stay there? Because you are probably one of the most nomadic people I've ever met. Yeah, that's what our parents say too. Yeah, this one should be, this should be the place. This should be the one, so uh, we're excited. Very excited, yeah. Amazing, so I've known you for almost 20 years. Um, I kinda know what you do. You're kind of like me where you're kind of a Swiss army knife where you do a lot of things. Yeah. How would you describe to somebody, what do you do? And uh, I guess every, with everything, like what do you do? What do you do and what are you doing now? Yeah, so uh, right now I'm the uh, general partner and founder of the GTM fund. Um, you know, we came to market with this unique concept, which is what if we raised a venture capital fund, invested in early stage software companies, um, but the different approach is that we raised most of the money from go-to-market leaders at proven companies. So a lot of our LPs are investors. Um, LP stands for limited partners. They are investors. 
Uh, they are VPC level sales marketing customer success leaders at some of the biggest software companies. So you named it before, Salesforce, Microsoft, we have folks from LinkedIn, we have folks from Zoom, apps that you use every day, Slack, you name it. And they're the investors in our fund. So when we invest in a company, we don't just give them money, but we give them resources to help them with sales, marketing, and customer success. So we actually help them grow their businesses and provide resources to give them further distribution, which um, there's a quote from Justin Kahn, who's one of the founders of Twitch and you know uh, ran YC, uh, Y Combinator for a while, big guy in the startup scenes. And he says, first time founders focus on product, second time founders focus on distribution. Basically the people who have been around the block know that that's really the crux of how you're going to succeed, you know, in a startup, in a business. So, you know, we come in and help them with that support. Uh, 75 million assets under management uh, through next year. So we raised, this is our second fund now. Does that grow, can that grow day by day or? Like, yes. Does that decrease? It, it grows, it grows. Uh, well, you know, we're in the private market. So if we have a company that goes under, it can decrease. But, um, you know, I think where we're playing right now in, in the earlier stages, it's, it's increasing. So when you're describing this, I'm thinking like Shark Tank. And whereas like when a company comes into the tank and let's say Mark invests in a company and now they're expecting Mark to be hands-on. Now let's say you have a VP from Datadog or a C-level from Salesforce. Mm -hmm. Are these companies that you're investing in expecting them to be hands-on? Are they expecting them to be there as a lifeline when they have questions? How does that work? It's more of uh, the lifeline than for them to have this like access to this one person and be hands-on. Um, we do give them access to our LP base uh, and we have LPs like the SVP of global sales from Datadog is an LP in the fund. So he'll come That's in massive. and we'll have a, a company say, you know, hey, I need help with um, building out my first comp plan. You know, how do I pay my reps? What do I, how do I set up a base and, you know, commission plan? Uh, what's, what's, what's quota going to look like? I don't know any of these things. I'm a product founder. I know how to code. I don't know, you know, how to set this up. Okay. Well, we'll connect you with somebody who's done that from zero to 200 million in revenue at a software company before. So they can help you set up comp plans that won't break in four quarters, six quarters, eight quarters from now. And if you have a broken comp plan at any point in your company, it sets you back a quarter or two because reps aren't incentivized to continue selling. If they know that, a account is going to be taken out of their name because something's breaking in the comp plan or they've hit their ceiling and what they could get paid or they've hit, you know, the extent of their accelerators and they can't make any more money. They're not incentivized to, to sell anymore. Right? So it's very important stuff. We have people who come to us, founders who come to us and say, Hey, I want to build my first customer community. Can you help me with that? And we have the person who built the Atlassian community from scratch. With the person who built the Salesforce community from scratch. What does that look like? Because like I hear customer community and I'm probably wrong. I think like a Discord. Well, yeah, it could be a Discord, could be Slack, could be something that's built into one of the community apps, which, you know, Salesforce has a community, um, you know, software uh, that they roll out. But, you know, any any company that wants to get a list of or get a group of their users together to talk about, hey, what are the what are the you know new features and functionality that you want us to build for you? What are the hey, here's an event that we're throwing in New York City. We want to get everybody there in person to talk about, you know, the 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 day to day of your job, the pain that you're going through right now. How can we make that better? How can we tie what you're doing to revenue? Things like that. So, you know, it's a those things are really important. And every company um, it's really a trickle down from the founders, like the, the soul, heart and soul, the, the culture of the company comes from the initial founders. So 
what core competences a company has, usually start with them. And then as you hire more people, you branch out from there. So you might have a founder of a company who's very great, you know, very good at, at building community. And that might not be an area where, uh, you know, you need as much help. In other cases, they're, you know, really good at um, demand gen, paid marketing, uh, you know, things that are more analytical. In those cases, you may need support on community. You may need support on some of the more customer facing stuff. When you go now, are you trying to seek out companies or are they trying to seek you out? Um, both. I'd say about 75% of our deal flow comes in through our LP base. Uh, so our GTM leaders all act as nodes for deal So it's like they're flow. being pitched and they're like, hey, talk to GTM? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a great model. So. For example, if you have the CRO Procore, which is a public company, it's in the construction, yeah. prop tech, and sure tech space. Uh, you know, if if a startup or you know founder is building something in that space, they're going to potentially reach out to Dennis and say, "Hey, you know, you've taken a company from zero to seven hundred million in revenue in this space. Can you give me some advice on what I'm doing?" If it's interesting to him, he could angel invest or advise, get equity that way or he can send it to us. And now he develops a basket of companies he's now an investor in because he sends us a company. Maybe the head of sales at Square sends us a company. Maybe the head of sales at Datadog sends us a company. And if they invest in us and we do all three of those deals that they send us, now instead of just being all the way in their space, they now have access to deal flow in you know different verticals. So the head of sales at Square sends us a FinTech deal. The head of sales at Datadog sends us an observability or you know DevOps deal, uh, and the Procore one sends us you know an insure tech deal or something like is that. Is a big part of the payment and kind of how you guys are able to grow. Is your business uh, equity based, or are they paying you uh, a retainer? Or it's traditional venture capital. So you know we we you know if we have let's let's make the numbers easy if we have 100 we'll also million explain it in layman's terms because yeah. uh just explaining how venture capital works yeah so uh you know we'll have investors who invest in our fund uh let's say that's a hundred million dollar fund uh we have 10 years uh that we earn fees on that management fees and to deploy that capital you said 10 years yeah it's a 10-year time horizon and that's what the expectation is to to get money back out of it. So for example, the $10 million fund, the traditional fund fee breakout is two and 20. So you get 2% a year for 10 years in management fees. So 20% of the fund actually pays, you know, for the cost to run the fund and then 20% carry. Once you return the fund to your investors, you get 20% of, you know, the profits that's called carry. So if a hundred million dollars invested turns into $200 million, you double it, uh, you get, 20 million of the 100 million that you added to the initial 100. Um, let's see, what else is good to know? So, you know, you invest in companies, support those companies. It's usually a seven to 10 year time horizon, especially for the stages that we're dealing at. So we invest at the earliest stages of, of you know, companies formation. So it takes a while for them to, to get off the ground and going. Some companies we invest in where their pre-product and you know we're helping them refine what they're going to go to market with how to get product market fit so they can start selling that product and other companies we invest in they already have product market product market fit they already have a million in revenue maybe or a couple hundred thousand in revenue and then it's just okay let's pour gasoline on this fire and you know help you scale this thing so 
Are there any companies that you're bringing on who kind of look like, all right, you had something, but you did it wrong. Mm -hmm. And now we see the potential before you die, we're going to revive you and we're going to launch you into the atmosphere. Yeah, it's a typical startup thing called pivoting where, uh, you know, they may have a little bit of traction, but they see you know, a low ceiling or something like that. And they're like, hey, this isn't a, a venture scale business. We need to figure out how to pivot this into something that is. And, you know, you've seen that, um, I think, you know, some of the biggest businesses that are familiar to you started like that. Uh, I know Instagram was one of those. It wasn't initially uh, a photo sharing app the way it is today. And they well, had an early pivot. I don't know, you could look it up, but I do know that Andreessen was, I think their earliest investor, uh, and they invested in a company that started as what what, uh, what um, Instagram ended up being, and then Instagram pivoted to that. And so they had two companies in the portfolio that were now like competitors. Got it. And Instagram won big, and the other one didn't. Uh, I remember from like 2011, where it was just photos, and like back then everyone was using the cool, there was like eight filters, and you did a photo, a filter, and it was just a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely changed uh, a lot since it started, that's yeah. for sure. But um, it blew up, it blew up quick and they had a great exit. I think they were, you know, a, what was it, like a dozen employees or something like that and ended up selling to Facebook for a billion or something. So that was a huge one. Um, and that's probably yeah. a big goal for like what you guys do. It's like trying to find that, that yeah. uni unicorn? Unicorn, yeah. Trying to find Decacorn. a unicorn that's yeah. worth, you know, that's a 12, 12 employee company. That's then going to be worth it because if you find a company that then sells for a billion, I did that. The, uh... I did that as an angel investor. So that I mean, that's kind of how I got into this. So I'll give you my my, my full background. I started uh, my career um, actually in college. I tried to start two companies. First company was a bike share program, like these city bikes that are right around cities. They only existed in Europe at the time. So a bike share program in Tempe. Yeah, that's what I wanted to start. Um, I had done the. Uh, a year abroad in Barcelona, they had the bikes. I was like, wow, this would, this would crush it at ASU. It's flat, it's hot, people wanna get places faster. There's a bunch of parking lots that nobody uses that are super far away. The university can make more money from it. So I ended up applying for this uh, business plan competition at the university. I Were won. you in the business school? Uh, no, I was in the entrepreneurship program. Gotcha. And it was one of the first years that that existed at ASU. And uh, I won, they gave me a $2,000 grant. Didn't really move the needle on anything, but it was encouraging. And, uh, and so we won, we won this- uh, $2,000 grant, go make a logo. Yeah, pretty much <laughs> exactly what we did, which was fine. I mean, we made a logo, made a website, um, paid somebody for design help on the deck. I mean, like 2K basically gets you enough to create collateral to like raise more money, like to look real enough, enough. where you can raise more money. And back then $2,000 kind of went a little further. Certainly, um, not much further, but certainly a little further than it does today. But uh, so we got a, uh, we ended up getting exclusive rights to commercial bike sharing through the university president, got a signed contract with that, uh, ended up uh, working with the university architect to establish locations for the bike racks on campus. This is amazing. And then uh, towards what, an what an experience for what? A it was better than an MBA. It was better. I learned yeah. so much. I remember we got like frozen frozen out by this one woman at the university for like two weeks and you know started to get nervous about like oh what's going on behind the scenes here and so i went to her office one day and her you know admin uh what are they called secretary i don't even know sure. in my world we don't have secretary secretaries you like administrative admins and eas and stuff but um 
Her secretary goes, uh, yeah, she's in meetings all day, like come back another time or, or schedule an appointment. And this person wasn't responding to me. I couldn't schedule an appointment. So I just sat there for about four hours. I brought my laptop, you know, did my schoolwork, whatever. <laughs> and eventually she, she was like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll see you. And yeah. they did tell us that like they were starting to talk to a couple other um, you know, companies to run this because oh, wow. they were like, this like a all right, Max Altscher has this great idea for the university, but he's a student from New York. Yeah. Let's see if we could push him out and actually take this business for the university. Pretty much. <laughs> they looked at us and they were like, what are like two 22 year olds going to do with this thing? Oh like, my God. There are a couple proven vendors here. Why don't, why didn't we talk to them? And I was like, well, we have this, uh, you know, exclusive contract and blah, blah. And they were like, well, there's ways of getting around that. And so we ended up having this conversation we were like, well, okay, well, there's a middle ground here. Like what if, what if y'all find the vendor, but like we run the program? Well, it's interesting your, your mindset. Well, tell me if this is right. Did your mindset go to like, how can we coexist? How can we do this together? Or were you initially like, screw you. I want to clobber you. I'm going to call an attorney. We're going to, and we're going to fight this. Was it the fight route or was it the collaborative route? It was the collaborative route. It's I amazing. mean, listen, you're, you're not going to beat them. No, but especially to even want to like think to go the collaborative route at such a young age is a testament to your future. But, in, you know, so it's funny. You have the meeting. You soak in the information. You set up, you know, follow-up time. You leave things amicable. But, like, you bring that home and you decide what to do. Emotional reaction in that meeting is not going to get you anywhere. It actually can, can hurt you more than help you. So like for me, it was, it was clear that like, okay, let me take this back, digest it, figure out what to do. And, and who's was, advising you at the time? Because I, I didn't even think about that. This wasn't a, who's, who's advising? Is your dad like? No, there's, we didn't have really anybody to turn to no? on this. We were just kind of like, all right. Two 22-year-olds well, making this decision without getting advice. It was just me at this point. Like I, I, I went in and had this meeting. I went back and, and you know, told my partner what was going on. And uh, anyway, long story short, the, the business ended up failing because we couldn't raise the money we needed to raise. And it was 2009. So we're coming out of you know, the, the great financial crisis. Um, nobody was giving us two 22-year-olds a bunch of money to manufacture bikes and bike racks in an area where, you know, nine bikes are stolen a day. Like we would have been out of business quick. It is the best thing that ever happened that this business failed. So right from there, I, I graduated college, started another business called Last Call Social Media. It was running social media for bars and restaurants because at that time everybody had a Yelp page, a Facebook for business page, uh, Foursquare page, all that type of stuff. And they needed help, you know, running that. And, um, and so we started that, we started making money and we took it to Costa Rica and Nicaragua and ran it from there for five months and made American money while living in, you know, a place where you didn't need a lot to live. So how were you getting the content from the bars? Like what was the, what was the process from soup to nuts with your clients? Yeah. I mean, we had like a early, I think it was like Trello we used, but basically like an early Asana project management software. Was we, Trello alive then or was it a form I don't of know Trello? if it was, it was a form of Trello, something okay. like that. Um, I think. Trello existed then. I th actually think it was Trello, but it was something like that. And, uh, you know, we kept everything in there with them. Hey, this is what needs to go out. We're doing, you know, Taco Tuesday promotion. You know, this needs to go out across all our platforms. And uh, we made some good money, had a good time. We, we, you know, surfed and hung out in Costa Rica, Nicaragua. I ran this business. It was with like, you know, two friends from college. And um, that business, you know, ended up, we ended up kind of looking at each other one day and be like, hey, we're, we're too ambitious for this. Like, 
what are we, what are we gonna do with this thing? And uh, we were teaching ourselves how to, to code, how to program and build uh, websites into the Facebook iframe. At the time you could build like a mini website into Facebook for teach business your, pages. Teach yourself to code how? Using a uh, program called Linda, which LinkedIn then bought. Linda, like Aunt Linda, like the name Linda? L-Y-N-D-A, yeah, it was, okay. like a, it was a software company that had like programming courses. And one of our customers was like, hey, have you heard of Udemy? I was like, what the hell is that? She's like, yeah, it's just, they have like programming courses. So I looked at it and uh, they had a business development hire job opening on like the footer. I remember and at this, this point, coming back to me. at this point we knew we had to, to do something, shake something up. So I ended up taking my first interview call with Udemy for the BD job um, in a payphone, one of those like uh, call centers in Nicaragua. And like you had one day a week in the town we were in where like electricity went out. You didn't know which day it was <laughs> and when it was gonna be. So I was like, oh man, please not, please not now, please not now. And uh, so I took that call and um, ended up flying up to San Francisco and did seven hours of interviews, uh, got that job. And um, I, was the first one in, last one out. I, I'm like, nobody's gonna outwork me here. And it comes back to, you know, kind of the mentality that I've had my whole life, which is like, yeah, I might not be the, the smartest person in the room, but like, if I'm into it, I'm gonna be the hardest worker. And, and go back to my, my hockey playing days, like, yeah, if I'm not the most talented person out there, it doesn't matter, I'm, I'm still gonna outwork everybody. And so I think you could that, win like where that. where did that come from? I don't know. Um, I think that uh, I've always been extremely competitive. It's been ingrained in me for one reason or another. Uh, it's funny, I, I, I look at my parents and I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't know where it came from, but I do think like kids are pre-programmed in a, in a, in a, to an extent. And, uh, and so like that was always something that drove me. I think it was always you know, mostly competitive with myself. Like I know I could do better. And I think there's some of that that comes from my mom's side, which is, uh, you know, she was raised and she'd come home with a 98 on a test and her parents would be like, where are the other two points? Like, that's the question instead of like great job. School and were you getting terrible? Sort of I was a terrible student. I was, I've always lived by the C's get degrees mantra. Classic yeah, ASU student. ASU. Classic ASU student. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, this is a complete tangent, but. I don't think the way that we do schooling is is the right way to do things. So, you're 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 kind of sitting in. Uh, no, I mean, I look at some of my most successful friends, and like, none of them it had anything to do with university or any of that. It was being in the university, like being being within the university and around people yeah. inspired them to do things, and their life outside of it inspired them to do things. And it's really just learning from real world experiences yeah. and just fucking doing. Yeah. Well, I was, I was scared coming out of college. I mean, we, we graduated at a tough time. The, the entire world, I mean, the economy had just collapsed. You came out in 08, I came out in 09. I mean, the worst. We were in a, it was a really shitty time to look for jobs. And so when I got this one, I was like, I'm never, gonna, I'm never going to have a resume again. I'm never going to look for jobs again. Like, I'm gonna make sure that I'm gonna cut my teeth. I'm gonna put in whatever I have to put in, and I learned some amazing things. So you know, I, I get in to Udemy. They they kind of kind of gave me the supply side, the instructor side of the education marketplace. And uh, as an eighth employee, second business hire, first person focused on the sales side of the business. 
And I needed to find a way to generate more revenue using less resources. That's what sales hacking was. And uh, so I built a team of virtual assistants in the Philippines and taught them how to be sales development representatives. And then um, we leveraged some early sales technology that you know had a handful of customers and helped them with their product roadmap. Um, we built web scrapers using uh, outsourced uh, Python programmers on Upwork to scrape lists of leads. So for example, if we were selling uh, instructors on creating programming classes, we would go and scrape the uh, bestseller book lists of all the programming books. And then we would reach out to those authors and say like, hey, congratulations on your best-selling book. You know, you should pair this with a course because this is a natural way for you to upsell everything that you're doing. Absolutely. Your course could be $300 to teach them how to program and your book is, you know, twenty nine ninety nine. It's like, you should be plugging your course in your book. Any, any like talk you give at a conference, you should be saying, you know, oh, you read my book? Like, go take my course now. So uh, that worked really well for us. Uh, other VCs and founders would ask our VCs and founders how we were growing so fast in this area and they would point them to me. Uh, and that spawned uh, the company Sales Hacker, which was my media company. So was that your idea to kind of scrape and find out who were the, the yeah. authors to then go reach yeah. out to? We had to figure out a, a, a better way to do it because the companies we were competing with all had a, a lot more money than us. Mm -hmm. And so they just kind of threw headcount at things. They paid for stuff. We couldn't afford to do that. For me to go build that web scraper was maybe, you know, $500 on Upwork That's and then crazy we get a ton of free data out of it. That's crazy. Yeah. You would think that that would cost $100,000 to build, $500. Simple, yeah. Phantom.js or, you know, it's like Python. You can you can put one of those together pretty quickly and then it just like, it basically can go on like Amazon and type, you type in uh, uh, programming category or, you know, tech category, whatever it is for books. And then it'll, it'll literally like scrape the page and then hit next page for you and then scrape that page. Like it'll run the whole and thing. And then give you like a CSV yeah. with all of the authors. And Title, everything. author, all that. And then Amazon. I have a virtual assistant in the Philippines append it with email addresses. They go to the, they Google the author, go to their website, find the contact us, take the email address, put it in that. And then you plug that into, uh, you know, one of the early sales engagement technologies that we're using at the time. And that would put them into a sequencing campaign. So we'd send them an email, you know, a week with different you know, copy. And I automated that too, by like building out these Google docs, like with if then statements, if the person responds positively, send them this, if the person responds negatively, send them this, if the person responds with, um, you know, I'm interested, let's set up a time, look at my calendar, pick an open slot. I got to the point where it was like, I'd walk into the office and it's like, look at your calendar up. Oh, I got eight phone calls today with instructors. I never sent an email or anything. My, my team in the Philippines. Now, how much that. research are you doing pre-call? Uh, usually there's a link in there to like their website oh or the book God. that they wrote. You had it down to a science. Yeah. So it's all prepped and like it's, the, the more you run the process, the more you, you know, can massage it and then give better instructions to, you know, other virtual assistants in the Philippines. And I found that like, I've always used virtual assistants in the Philippines. They're like, they're phenomenal. Um, so that, that was a huge help. So anyway, that turned into the media company, sales hacker. Sales hacker, um, I ran for five years and um, it was a great cash flowing business, but not a high upside business. Meaning software companies are selling for 10, 20 X multiples on the revenue that they're bringing in. Media companies, you know, you'll get like 
one to three X revenue or something. It's actually usually more on, on profit, on EBITDA than it is on, on revenue. So uh, I took some of that cash flow and I started angel investing uh, and advising early stage companies. What was the first company that you invested in? Outreach. So $3 million valuation, pre-seed, most recent valuation was 4.4 billion. So that was before you were talking about, um, you know, the goal is to go find a company and, you know, a dozen employees that eventually sells for a billion dollars. Well, you can do better than that. You can find a company with three employees yeah. that, you know, eventually. What was it about outreach that stuck out to you? I, to me, it's always a couple things. So um, main thing is the main founder or the founding team has to be spectacular, has to be, I mean, really the only way to describe the person is they have to be a machine. Some people like to use the word animal. I don't really care, but you gotta be a machine. You and gotta they, be just run through walls for your business. And you have to have a vision. You have to understand a space really well. That space has to have tailwinds that is going to propel the space, not hinder it. And they have to have some sort of why you? What's your unfair advantage in this space that you have over everybody else? If we look at a geospatial mapping company that's doing, you know, mapping APIs, uh, so they, in layman's terms, they like build Apple Maps inside of apps, let's say. If I talk to a founder of that company and I say, okay, this is great, sounds interesting, why you? Well, I built this at Uber and I, my three co-founders all came from Uber Engineering and we already built this. Okay, that's interesting. If you're like, oh, I'm like a marketing manager at Spotify, it's like, well, you have no special access secret sauce here. This doesn't make sense for you. Like, that's a harder bet to make. So, you know, Manny, uh, a meet at Gong. So I was early uh, investor and advisor in Gong. The, they ended up, their last round was 7.25 billion. Um, uh, a handful of others that, you know, I was able to size up at the early stages and, and build a track record upon. And so I think I've had uh, six or seven companies uh, that I was an investor in alone, not even advisory, not even employee, that ended up being uh, multi-billion dollar companies. So you went Udemy to Sales Hacker. Yeah. Was there, there was overlap, but did you, at what point did you leave Udemy, go to do Sales Hacker and then go and be a VC? Yeah. Uh, Udemy was there for about a year and a half, two years, took them through their seed A, B rounds of funding. So like eight to 60 oh, something employees, I think it was. And then, um, and then yeah, started Sales Hacker. First, it was kind of like a private meetup, uh, just four of us geeking out on some of the things that we were doing in our own companies. And then uh, through a conference, went really well. I made more money from that conference in six weeks worth of work. Let's talk about that. What made, because I, I wanted to touch on this. Yeah. When you started your conference, one, what'd you call it? Two, what made you want to throw a conference? And three, how scared were you for those six weeks? Sales Hacker Conference, because it was just an extension of the Sales Hacker Meetup and Sales Hacking is what so we called it. So it's kind of like Sales Hacker, you're like, now it's not just this media company, it's a platform. Well, so we were, while I was at Udemy, we had a four person meetup, we would just geek out and stuff. We said, okay, we'll expand this, but let's only bring people that add value. Over the course of that year, we'd meet once a month. It went from four people to 20 people. At the, at the last meeting, I knew I was moving into, gonna move on and, and do something else. So I just said, hey, you know, who here would be interested if I threw a conference around this? Maybe 100 people, we'll get you know, a bigger group together. 
and we'll like the 20 of us can get on stage and share some of the stuff that we're doing but like there's obviously demand for this and uh turned into a 300 person conference charged 300 a ticket got sponsorships kept costs low i made more off that conference than i was making a year in my udemy salary not including stock of course but just in my in my cash comp and um yeah i was i was a little scared but i kept the burn low like i kept the, the expenses fairly low and so that i cleared that hurdle pretty quickly and then it was like okay well if this works great if it doesn't you know i won't lose money and i'll just go you know get another job at a, a tech company or something and it worked and then i did a new york event and then we launched saleshacker.com which was the publication we did um you know paid meetups in uh 20 cities across five continents well with, with doing these paid meetups how do you know how to because you haven't thrown an event before how do you know how to take payment how do you know how to send people their their tickets how do you know how to do sign-ins you learn you learn and, and you know once you you factor in the pricing with uh outsourced event teams and stuff like that okay. so you know, they come in and help you with a lot of that signage, uh, run a show, all that, you know, vendor, vendor payments, vendor uh, scheduling, everything. So you kind of learn on the fly. I mean, uh, one of my biggest fuck ups was I lost a lot of money on an event. And this was towards the end of Sales Hacker. I ran it for five years. Um, and towards the end of Sales Hacker, I saw the writing on the wall where it was getting a lot easier for companies to throw their own conferences. So you used to have customer conferences companies would have them when they had enough customers, which was usually pretty far along in their, in their business uh, life cycle. But then investment started to speed up in like 2015, 2016, 2017. All of a sudden, these early stage companies were flush with cash, so they were throwing their own conferences. Next thing you know, the, the con like the, making money off conferences gets really hard and, uh, and got ahead of my skis, lost a bunch of money on one of the conferences. And that, What's that a bunch point, of money? Like, Five six hundred k, five six hundred k, which was big. Because obviously you say lost a bunch of money. My head, I probably lost like ten twenty grand. No, this was this was a lot of money for us. I mean, how, the whole business you, was making like three million a year. Wait, so how do you lose five six hundred k from an event? Thought we were gonna have a lot more people there. Thought we were gonna have a lot more sponsors. What is got over my skis? You, Max Alcher, the one who's the rubbing pennies together to throw an event, and like not in a negative way, but in a positive way, where you're able to do things so economically, how do you get to the point where you're spending that much money on an event? Market turned mixed with eyes bigger than your stomach. You did know, you, but did you have like a performance with, were you paying like, no, we, like so this, Mars, was, this was grand? a joint event we did with uh, Salesforce. Okay. And so, um, you know, we got a lot of assurances from them, um, that ne didn't necessarily pan out the way that, you know, we or they anticipated, and we took a lot of the risk on that event in order to work with them. Was this all contractual? Yeah, you know, it, it paid off over time. Um, we lost money on that event, and I come from the camp of extreme ownership. So, you know, for me, if you have a failure and you blame other things, then you don't get the juice out of that failure. You don't get the learnings from it. That's like the best part of, of the failure. And so for me, it was, okay, like, what can I do better? How do we pivot the business? Like, what do we need to understand from this? So first of all, I mean, Salesforce was very happy with us after that event. We got a, a great new partner out of that that had deep pockets, which we were able to leverage in the future. So, you know, that wasn't terrible. 
The second thing is it really was apparent that the conferences were not going to be the future of this business and we needed to find a way to pivot and pivot quick. And so we ended up pivoting to digital. We were one of the first to really take advantage of the whole like kind of um, virtual events and webinars and paid webinars and things like that well before COVID, which, you know, during COVID that kind of like jumped the shark. But before that, you know, we were able to turn the conference business almost completely digital while cutting almost all of our costs because a lot of our costs were overhead for events and our revenue didn't really take much of a hit. But are you it. able to charge the same amount for a digital as you were for an in-person? Not from attendees, but from sponsors, roughly, we, we were able to, and we were able to run more of them. So we ended up having a much more profitable business and it took this big failure and, and, and you know, learning experience to be able to push it in that direction. And then, uh, you know, funny enough, 2018 came around and we got, we kind of plateaued a little bit in the current business and said to myself, all right, we are going to have to pivot. We're going to have to open up new lines of, of, you know, courses or, or recruiting service or research and advisory for this business to get to the next level. So I can either spin my wheels on that for the next six to 12 months and it may or may not work out, or I can look for potential acquirers. So I had this spreadsheet and on the spreadsheet, it was a list of potential acquirers bucketed out by, um, you know, essentially categories. So research and advisory firms, training and consulting firms, software companies, you name it. By putting these companies in the buckets, did you have like, here's the number one company that should buy us and here's why, here's the number two and here's why. And you, did you kind of go through it like that? I had like relationship strength, the contact that I had there, like likelihood number. It was like a proper CRM that I built in, into a spreadsheet. And we were talking to HubSpot, we were talking to LinkedIn, we were talking to a few other companies, they were coming with like cash offers. And then uh, I went to Outreach's conference in 2018 and I sat down with Manny, the CEO, and uh, I, they had just raised money and I said, hey, congrats on the, the Series D, half a billion dollar valuation, things are going great, you're the leader in this Bananas. space. Amazing. It's crazy. Yeah. I said, what keeps you up at night? And that's in what, three years? Uh, three years since my initial investment. Yeah. yeah. I said, what keeps you up at night? And he said, marketing. I said, well, I have the best in class media company in the space. You have the best in class sales technology company as proven by you know, the most recent fundraise. Let's make this thing happen. So he kind of sits up in his seat, pulls out his notepad. We start talking. He, he calls his EA over, says, cancel my next meeting. <laughs> and uh, we, 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 we get going and uh, he's like, okay, I need you to meet with my COO and uh, you know, one of my co-founders and our CRO, can you do it like while you're here at the conference? Okay, so like I push my flight back. You're like, let me check we my do schedule. This, yeah, we, yeah do this, we do this whole <laughs> thing and, um, and yeah, we get a deal done. Uh, three months later we announce it, but we get the deal done, you know, really within the next four weeks and like the, the rest of the time is kind of just like legal, you know, crossing T's, dotting I's type stuff. So I started working even before my first day. I actually hired my first employee before my start date. She, we started on the same day. We had, we had a big conference coming up, Dreamforce, and then we had our own conference the next year. A bunch of money had been laid out, but like no work had been done on these things yet. So I was like, if I'm coming in here, we gotta, we gotta make moves. So I said to the marketing team, hey, you know, who do we, who's our outsourced uh, event team? Like, who do you use? Do you like them? And they were like, yeah, we use this woman, Melissa. She's great. I say, okay, From can you entry? X something, I forgot right. the name of the company. But um, 
they're like, yeah, here's her info. Put me on an email thread with her. I get on with her and you know her company. And right after that call, I'm like, this is gonna be expensive to agency this whole thing out. We just need somebody in-house to run this. I don't want to deal with this. So I, I go to her email, I go look in the signature, I see her cell phone, I call her cell phone. I'm like, hey, why don't you just come here and do this in-house? Work for us. And you know, it's a win-win-win because like we get you, I don't have to deal with this. You come here, you could probably get paid more and get stock and work on this anyway. And your agency wins because if I don't hire you, I have to hire somebody else and they're gonna pick an agency and they're probably gonna pick an agency they've worked with before. So like your agency still gets to keep our business. And she was like, okay, that makes sense. And Wait, so we so ended up hiring her. to keep the business. So did you poach her and bring her on as an employee and she left her company? Yeah. And then we hired the agency to do a lot of the, the agency work. Like hiring her doesn't, doesn't take away the fact that you still need to outsource a bunch of stuff. Got it. So instead of she giving just them runs the events. Instead of giving them $100, you're giving them $40. Yeah. And you're giving her. And she comes in house. Amazing. And it, so first of all, not only is it cheaper for us across the board, amortized across both of them, but. I have somebody who works for the company who's now managing all that stuff that I don't have to manage. Yeah, so you kind of now have all her trade secrets. Yeah, exactly. And she works for us and we're like, we're the only person she, so like my meeting with her weekly is just a meeting with her and then she goes and does it instead of like me having to meet with my team and then meet with the agency and then all meet together. It's like, you handle the agency. I don't want to handle the agency. Amazing. And as a VP of marketing and a fast growing business where you're running, you know, a 20, 30 person team and doubling revenue you, you can't be bogged down in the minutiae of those types of things you have to you have to hire people you trust and then give them the keys to the car and say okay go drive so um so that was great um and ended up working at outreach from uh 25 to 250 million in arr uh vp of marketing so led marketing uh we eventually hired a cmo ended up working in between marketing and, and sales operations, uh, worked very closely with our CRO, CEO, CMO, and where are you living at teams. this time? Uh, uh, we moved to Seattle for, for this opportunity. Okay. Uh, that, was, that was the only way to do it. That's where HQ was. And um, yeah, and then uh, in 2021, started this fund on the side, GTM fund, with our hypothesis of you know, what if we raised a million dollars from 50 of my friends who were go-to-market leaders? Uh, they all came to me and said the same thing. Hey, how do I diversify? Uh, if I go work for a company, I get, I get my salary and I get stock over a four-year vest. But if the, if the stock doesn't, if the company doesn't materialize, I get nothing for that stock. So if you had two sales leaders from Salesforce in 2012 and one went to go be the head of sales at Zoom and the other one went to go be the head of sales at Achievers, they both worked there for four years. I mean just by what happens in the markets, no fault of their own. The one at Achievers could be more competent, but the one at Achievers makes $0 and the one at Zoom makes 25 million. So they want a way to diversify too. So we started the fund, uh, investor early stage companies, and uh, we ended up raising 6 million in 2015 instead of a million. We ended up raising 15 million and, uh, sorry, in 2021, then 2022 was 15 million. How, what was so attractive? We had a really unique value prop. Nobody else is doing this. I think, you know, when people take money from. Why was nobody doing it? Like it was something we, like this. It's like there's thousands upon thousands of smart VCs out there. You got to play to your strengths. Come up with it. You know, I just happen to have this amazing network of VPC level sales, marketing and customer success leaders because I ran a media company in the space and then ran a tech company in the space. 
So I had that. And then on the flip side, you know, two-sided marketplace, I've got them. I also had a, a great track record as an angel investor. So you have to kind of be able to, to be a good investor, have a good eye. You also have to be well-connected in the GTM space and understand GTM yourself. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of people that have both of those things. So I found my sweet spot and, you know, capitalized on that. It's kind of like LeBron, you know. LeBron could play big man. He could bring up the ball. I'll take any comparison to LeBron I can get, I guess. You know, I'll, I'll take that. But, yeah, so that's the journey. And now, uh, you know, raised, raised a lot more money since then, uh, investing that, really enjoying being um, on this side of the fence, you know, from being an operator where, you know, your hair's on fire all the time to now being an investor and you're kind of like a grandparent versus mm-hmm. a parent. Like, I'm not in the business. I get, I get to come in, help out with things, but, you know, then kind of zoom out. And for where I'm at in my life right now, uh, yeah, it's great. It's good balance. So you wrote two books. The first was Sales Hacker. Three. Three books. Sales Hacker. Uh, career, career Hacking. Career and career sales hacking. En- and Sales Engagement. So Sales, sales Engagement, engagement and, and Hacking Sales were both published by Wiley. Those are my sales books. Sales Engagement I wrote to build the category at Outreach of Sales Engagement. Hacking Sales was my first book. That was kind of like all the cool stuff we were doing at Udemy and then you know throughout um, – Sales hacker, and then career hacking uh, is the other one. Uh, career which, hacking was great. Tell me about career hacking and how that came to be. Yeah, in, in 2016 and 17, LinkedIn started like their news feed, and they had this crazy algorithm thing where like you know you could just post in there and you can get thousands of people to come to your content. And you were living in. <sighs> this time I was in the Hamptons in New York and Miami. We're, we're remote. I was running Sales Hacker. And uh, I just kept posting these like snippets of kind of like things that I was thinking about that helped me in my career. And next thing, and I, and I would, after they had been up for about a week, I'd copy and paste them into a doc. And then I'd also copy and paste how many likes and comments they got to see the engagement to understand like what was resonating. And so you can create more content about the things Not that were resonating. Not because you're analytical or anything. Exactly, right? I mean, like kind of have to be. And, uh, and next thing you know, I'm like, wow, I have 15,000 words. It's like, that's a book. Let me polish this thing up. So I wrote my first book in Bali in five days, Hacking Sales. I wrote uh, Career Hacking. After I had those 15,000 words already, I kind of strung it all together, chaptered it out, wrote the rest of the words in three days from Bali. And then uh, Sales Engagement. Um, We did a bunch of uh, prep work on, but I wrote that from five days, uh, from Miami in five days. So So non-Bali. Non-Bali. But I, 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 like, if... I could never be the type of person who's like, I will write for an hour a day and I'll finish this book in three months. It's like, no, I'll never, it'll never get done. I just have to sit in a space for as long as I can with no distractions, interruptions. So this is like, go. phone is over there, computer's over here, I got the scenery and my fucking thoughts, let's rock. I've got like a, a butler that's bringing me uh, food and drink. I'm, I'm, I'm standing up in the pool with my laptop on the side. Yeah. I'm in like my, my pool chair. I'm in my room, uh, wherever. And I'm just, I'm, I think, let's see. The first one was from Gilly T. Hacking Sales I wrote in Gilly T. I think it's like Lucid de Arma or something like that was the name of the hotel. And then the second one I wrote from the Como Shambhala in uh, Bud uh, in Bali. And then the third one was from uh, one hotel in Miami. Beautiful. Patio, yeah. Beautiful. So what do the next six months look like for Max Ashler? Next six months, uh, more of this. Um, investing, supporting our portfolio companies, and um, you know, f- fundraising is a never-ending game. Uh, balance, 
seeing my 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 wife and kids and dogs as much as I possibly can not not being on the road uh, as much as I was in you know previous previous businesses and uh, you know learn to play golf so trying to get into that a little bit down Beautiful. to an 11 and a half handicap so you and know you the, live in Scottsdale so you better exactly yeah I mean the key to playing golf is like you don't want to get too good because then you're probably spending too much time doing it yeah. but uh, you know it's it's been it's been fun and it and it's uh, peaceful and it, uh, it's it's helping me with patience and it's also one of those those sports where like you can't just play harder if it's not in your bag it's not in your bag and yeah. so you know uh, that's that's new to me I, I can play anything as long as like I can out out hustle you you know I, I can be decent not in golf but not in golf so do you have any passion projects like something that like all right this isn't really a SAS play but it's something that I enjoy maybe like, I don't know, uh, like a, like a hockey media online. So like, not that it would be that, but any sort of passion project that you want to touch. Yeah, not really. Um, I think I'm in the phase of my life right now where I'm kind of optimizing for like more balance and passion project is spending time with the kids and like they are like building them is the passion project. And I think that's, um, where my time is most importantly spent. So. Out of all the companies you've worked, you've worked with, worked for, where would you put fatherhood in the level of, uh, I guess, t- role, title? Yeah, I mean, fatherhood's P1. That's top priority. I mean, that's, that, is, uh, that is something that um, you know, means the most to me and is going to have the, like, the, the most outsized outcome on happiness and, and life. Uh, and I think I, I planned it out right. Uh, a lot of the other stuff I did before fatherhood got me to a place where like I don't really need to work for money. Uh, I like I I do it because I like it. I do it because it's filling. I do it because I really don't know what the hell else I'd do. I can't play golf every day. I, I would. You could. I wouldn't like it. Yeah, I need I need <laughs> to keep I need to be cooking. So you know, um, I really enjoy the balance that I have right now, and we'll see. I mean, I think. Uh, in a couple of years can reassess. I, I try to re-underwrite every year, you know, where I'm spending my time and, you know, what fulfills me. And, and right now I feel, you know, in a really good place about that. Amazing. Uh, what are you reading right now? I'm assuming you have to read. You wrote three books. Always uh, read. You may not have time for paperback or maybe you do now. Yeah, uh, I do. I mean, the, I, I actually am listening to this one on Audible, but it's called The Courage to be Disliked. Um, did someone recommend it to you? Yes. And super fascinating Can you book. tell us who recommended it? Uh, yeah, like person, tech friend of mine. That, Maybe it was like a CFO of Datadog. Oh, okay. Ryan Hoover. No, just random, random person. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, enjoying, enjoying that one. I think it's, um, you know, a lot of these things are somewhat self-helpy, but it's good to hear the concepts. And, you know, for me, I think, you know, with my extreme ownership mentality, just, continuing to reiterate, reiterate that everything is within your control Amazing. and like you're in charge of your destiny. Nobody else is luck, good luck, bad luck. It's all bullshit. Now, do you have a Bible? Like what I mean by that is do you have like one book that you recommend to anybody? Like Max, I want to do what you do. That's not a thing, but here's one book I want you to go read and then let's chat. I carried, uh, a copy of The Greatest Salesman in the World by Og Mandino around with me in my backpack for like probably the first year of my career at, at Udemy. And um, just some really great guiding principles in there about life, but 
you know, the underlying, I'd say, story is you can kind of be anything you want to be and that like entrepreneurship and sales is the ultimate level playing field. And I just kind of lived that and saw that as I, as I grew up. I mean, in almost every room that I'm in, uh, you know, I, I guess at certain times it's like you've got Ivy League people, you've got investment banking people, you've got people who all were, were better than me in all those areas, yet, you know, here I am. This kid who got terrible grades and, you know, went to ASU and doesn't belong yeah, here, it was right? Being, uh, being in a room, and I'm sure it comes up being the guy who went to ASU versus Stanford, Yale, uh, Emory, even like just a, yeah. I, I mean, as an, as an Arizona guy, obviously like I want to talk shit, but you're one of the more successful people that I know. You went to ASU. Yeah. How was ASU when you're in a room? How was saying you're from, a, you went to ASU in a room? It doesn't come up anymore because that's the thing. Once you, once you have enough, you know, success and traction and other things like those are the things you get judged on if anything maybe it's now just like a conversation and it's not like a oh it's just like oh cool doesn't come up not even or if it does people are like oh that's a cool party school like i'm still in the fucking room like nobody's nobody's ever like oh haha you went to asu yeah um so yeah i think um greatest salesman in the world is is, is one i highly recommend and i i think i owe a lot to the fact that like anybody you can you can really, once you get out of college, do whatever the hell you want to do, or once you get out of high school, do whatever you want to do, and it's all a level playing field. I'm gonna pick that up. Yeah, check that one out. And um, I guess before I let you go, give me one word of advice for anybody trying to make it. Oh man, um, probably want to go away from some of the other stuff people said, otherwise it gets too redundant. So I'm gonna go with agency. And it comes back to the, the extreme ownership point, which is you're in control of everything. And you learn from your failures, make no excuses, and you know, own your destiny. And it's, it's up to nobody else but yourself to do so. So I think high, you know, we try to Oof. hire high agency people when we talk to them powerful. who understand that stuff. There are low agency, pe agency people who, like we talked before the podcast, just kind of content and complacent and really don't want to do better, be better, blame other things. Um, agency, find a way to, to embrace the fact that like you were the only one that can decide or dictate what's going to happen to you. And social media probably makes it harder for a younger generation to own that. Yeah, I'd imagine it's tough. Social media is a fucking blessing and a curse. God bless. Yeah. Dude. Great interview. Yeah. Max Alschler. You can find him on IG at Hackett Max, I think. Hackett Max. Um, a link for all three of his books will be on bookshop.org. And have a good one.